Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio, a podcast for public health professionals looking to expand their network, be inspired, and discover resources and tools that help improve the experience of public health professionals and patients in their communities. I'm your host, Fran. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Reach Radio. I am so excited and honored to be able to introduce you to Christopher Brown, who has years of experience providing for communities of color and working with families and individuals to help them to live their best lives. On today's show, we'll be talking to him about the work that he's doing to help engage children and families of color with career-oriented decision-making skills, grief counseling, professional development, substance use counseling, school behavioral plans, family therapy, and so much more. Chris is proficient in trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy and has led several trainings and supervision groups on that topic. He has a wealth of knowledge and his team is amazing as well, as together they are working to combat some of the challenges that are unique to people of color, particularly in the black and brown communities. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And we're just excited to have you here today. We've got a lot to jump into and can't wait to hear more about the work that your organization is doing. So why don't we just get started? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Sure. So I've been in the field as a mental health practitioner for years. I've kind of worked school-based, crisis, outpatient. You know, I've done a number of things just in and around the city of Philadelphia and also kind of doing some things, pushing kind of for social justice and change as well. So I actually founded Full Being Services with that mission in mind with me and a number of colleagues who we all kind of shared the same vision based off what we experienced ourselves as clinicians of color, based on what we witnessed kind of some of the the clients and the population that we're working with their experiences with some of the staff and the organizations and the systems that we're dealing with. And also just to ensure that people who look like us receive the quality treatment, you know, they received treatment equal to, and, you know, hopefully greater and more effective than others would be receiving that theories and strategies and interventions were customized specifically to make them culturally relevant for them. That sounds really fascinating. And also like a lot of hard work, right? I mean, just as people look at one another differently, treat one another differently, they analyze, right? And interpret behavior and different people inconsistently, right? How do you deal with confronting those realities, especially when some folks don't even recognize that they're doing that? Well, a large part of that work is really kind of pointing to public events, So really, since the murder of George Floyd last year, I mean, that sparked such a huge increase in public awareness. Well, not just public awareness, but also people's in general, just an increase of more knowledge and information related to anti-racism, related to DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion, but also just the toll that, you know, racism has on people of color, specifically black and brown people. So, you know, the impact is, it impacts both sides, right? So racism is a public health issue and it doesn't just impact psychological and physical health of black and brown people, but, you know, it also impacts the 
the care and the, the quality of care that they receive. It impacts their lifespan. You know, it, it impacts their ability to be productive employees at, at their jobs, to be contributing members of their community. So, you know, that really kind of helps to tie it all together, I think. So when you think about it in the context of providing for wellness programs, who are your stakeholders? Who are the folks that you're really targeting? Is it directly to the community or are you supporting enabling coaches, mental health practitioners, consultants? Who is the group that you're predominantly uplifting? So at Full Being Services, so we we have a number of arms, right? So there's the, the clinical arm that you know, we directly work. Now we accept people of all races, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, but we really specialize in working with people of color, right? So we have quality, competent clinicians who are, you know, able to work directly with clients who are seeking mental health treatment, but also we do trainings and workshops. So, you know, one of the things, you know, that I do is anti-racist consulting. So, connecting with agencies, organizations, systems. So the key stakeholders can be anyone, you know, even the smallest pebble, when you throw it in the pond, it creates a ripple. So identifying allies, people who are not, you know, they may not necessarily be impacted personally by what's going on, but, you know, they have a heart for it. You know, they, they want to make a difference. So, you know, it could be someone on the sidewalk holding a video camera, or it could be someone on the board of a managed care company you know, trying to create new pathways for uninsured people to receive services. You know, we we don't really limit stakeholders and it's really who wants to make a difference, who's in a position to make a difference and what can we do to support? That's really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the clients that you serve and individual therapy have in sort of prevalence, right? Are you seeing an increase in need for individual and, and maybe even family therapy? And do you attribute that to social, you know, challenges and conflict or to other factors as well that are, you know, impacting people and quite frankly, stressing them out? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. There's been a huge increase in the demand for services. So in many communities of color, treatment in general is stigmatized. So there's a lot of stigma towards mental health treatment in general, but more specifically, you know, that stigma is heightened in many communities of color. So there's that barrier about, you know, people, you know, even kind of recognizing and admitting, realizing to themselves that they need treatment, let alone kind of going out and getting the treatment. You know, that's a whole nother step in the process. So really one of the things that we aim to do is kind of destigmatizing mental health treatment, right? Making it more accessible, right? There are people who look like you had similar experiences to you, who maybe they've been through treatment themselves and they can kind of help walk you through your own treatment, right? So making it, you know, just more okay to recognize that, you know, your wellness needs to be tended to. So there's really that aspect of it, you know, but there's also, uh, you know, on so many levels, I mean, you know, when people specifically, you know, people of color coming to treatment, there's, a lot of times biases and prejudice that they have to kind of get past to even really begin to work on some of those core issues. So, you know, in order for a clinician to effectively do that work, you know, it takes a lot of work on their end to even bring to awareness those things and then begin to address them. So on a lot of levels, you know, 
destigmatizing, increasing accessibility, you know, just making it easier for people to receive access treatment. I mean, those are really kind of the core things that we do. And then we see with the pandemic, with COVID coming in, that added a whole nother layer of complexity on top. So there are families who literally had to choose between working and childcare, you know, and that just created a whole new level of strain and difficulties. And then there's been increased attention to the focus on police brutality, police assaults, police murders of black and brown people. So, and just with the media cycle, the constant replay, you know, I mean, racial trauma is a category that is under-researched, under-looked at, really kind of under-addressed. And, you know, that's a, a category that we're really growing in our specialization. So there's the beginning piece where we're trying to move and destigmatize, but also where we are currently with the additional stressors of COVID, you know, the society in general is presenting as more stressed and kind of dealing with more negative impacts from COVID. And also we have this, you know, this kind of barrage of, of media coverage, that is, which is oftentimes re-traumatizing. So it, it hits on many, many different levels. I think that that's so fascinating. And I want to stay with that last point for just a moment, because I think you have something there, right? Even when people feel like they may be able to deal with something on their own, and they may not even directly be the one experiencing it, but vicariously just through so much of what's coming through the media, that in of itself can be very traumatizing. Have you seen that to be a dilemma or a struggle for some of your clients or just communities in general? And how do you help folks to be able to deal with it? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Vicarious trauma is very real. Vicarious trauma can be just as debilitating as if the person experienced it themselves. And not only that, but that's, we're talking community wise, but also what about the helpers? What about the people who are experiencing this trauma vicariously? through media, through, you know, violence that could have occurred within their community. And, you know, now they're going to a session to help someone else to deal with their trauma, right? So secondary traumatic stress. So trauma impacts us in a lot of different ways. And, you know, we kind of look at wellness on a continuum, right? It's a a spectrum and you want to, as much as you can, And so multiple points here, but really as much as you can, you want to work toward protecting your wellness, right? A lot of people call that self-care. The way I look at it is self-care is really kind of a misnomer because it's really impossible. The way that so many systems are designed and the way the society values things, it makes it almost impossible for people to really to do that self-care on a consistent basis, you know, it places too much burden on the individual, right? So we need to look at systems. How can systems build in this collective rejuvenation for all of our wellness? And, you know, when people are, you know, revitalized, when people have support, when people are kind of have their emotional and psychological needs tended to, that makes for a healthier community and and a healthier society. And those are things that are really not talked about enough. Mm, very interesting. So one of the things you talked about were some of the barriers of as well to getting access to care. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And, and I'm curious to know, have you been embracing the use of telehealth? How's, how has that come into the mix of helping people have more convenient access to services? Well, telehealth has been an absolute game changer. It has, I mean, it developed out of necessity, Uh, the increased usage of it, but it's really been able to touch and reach and and help more lives and more people. I mean, it's something that was 
more often seen, you know, in maybe rural communities or communities that did not have access to practitioners based on distance or based on population, but, you know, it became a staple during COVID. And, you know, right now, I mean, we get calls from all over the state, you know, specifically people looking for black male therapists that, you know, they're able to access now because of, you know, just the increased usage and normalization of telehealth. Now, different insurance companies have different kind of expectations and requirements for it. And just publicly, the state of PA, when that disaster declaration was declared, and that allowed telehealth to be used for mental health services publicly, I mean, you know, it it just, it really made treatment a lot more accessible for people with health issues, chronic pain, you know, issues with public transportation. So telehealth has, has been you know, amazing and opening up more doors for people to receive the treatment from the providers that they want. That's really fascinating. Talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges along the way as your team seems to be, you know, very much focused in on trying to make sure that people of color in particular have access to care. I can certainly imagine that that's probably not so easy. Can you share with us some of the barriers, perhaps even some of the ones that are most unsuspecting that might be transpiring? Well, when it comes to dealing with race, there's there's a lot at the intersection of that, right? Things like socioeconomic status, you know, education, access to healthcare, etc. So there's so much at the intersection of that and, you know, it's it's very loaded. So when you try to address one thing, there's all these kind of other compounding issues that that also play a role, these systemic factors. So you try to address things from a systemic level in order to make, you know, the biggest dent or the, or the biggest impact. So just for example, you know, many clinicians, so typically, you know, at least here in, you know, where I'm in Philadelphia, the people who are using kind of the public services, you know, MA, for their insurance where they don't have to pay co-pays are overwhelmingly black and brown people, right? So we have clinicians who are, you know, once they become skilled and then become licensed, the general trend is for them to leave, you know, the public sector for mental health and then go into the private sector, where then people are paying either with private insurances or out of pocket for direct expenses. And, you know, that's, you know, typically a lot more money. Right. So at that intersection of race and socioeconomic status, right, if you're trying to reach more people of color, unfortunately, you know, if you're going into private practice, you know, you're, you're able you're not able to reach as many people of color because of the just that intersectionality of, of race and economic status. So that's a big part of the challenge as well. I mean, one of the things that we've done, is we've partnered with other groups to make sure that we can also impact people of color who are still, you know, in that public sphere, receiving MA health insurance and and going to public community settings. So for example, like a juvenile diversion program, right? We have a partnership with them where, you know, they're able to refer kids to us, kids and teens, youth, adolescents. And, you know, we're able to work something out where we're able to, to see those children, you know, where you have these trained clinicians who are in a private practice, but, you know, licensed, but also able to still connect with that population. So, you know, there are some things that need kind of working through and there are some strategies, but, you know, we're we're exploring avenues to try to ensure that we reach as many people as we can. 
It's really very fascinating. Now, are you focusing on the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area, or do you go broader than that? Well, with telehealth, we are able to go across the state. So, you know, we do have work with clients and families across the state. You know, as far as training and workshops, like those are some things that are done on, on a national scale. So we've worked with organizations here within Philadelphia, but we've also worked with national. We work with a national organization. We work with an organization in California. So there is, you know, with the popularity of Zoom and, you know, Google Meets and Blue Jeans, right? There's so many different avenues to connect. So it all kind of falls into that same auspice as telehealth to me, where it's like, you don't physically need to be there to still, you know, impact people's lives, to still make a difference. And so while we are stationed and headquartered here in Philadelphia, you know, we see families throughout the state and, you know, we, we work, we are working right now on a national scale. That's really fantastic, Chris. What are some of the things that your organization is looking forward to? Talk to us a little bit about opportunities that you see on the horizon. So we're really looking forward into how can we really kind of expand our reach systemically. So a lot of the issues that are impacting black and brown people are systemic. Right. So healthcare really uh, being able to to make a difference in connecting, you know, people of color to qualified clinicians who are really going to individualize, not just clinicians, but just medical practitioners being able to have a say on, on legislature, you know, telehealth, while we're allowed to use it now, you know, that's not a guarantee. Right. So in the public sphere, you know, that can be revoked once this kind of state of emergency that we're in because of COVID is over, right? So kind of advocating on that lens for increased and more access to telehealth services, being able to really kind of advocate and push for accountability for policing and social justice. So all that is part of, you know, that's a part of the healing process to be able to kind of take action and being able to to advocate against injustices and have a way to not necessarily right or wrong, but to have a way to turn some of this pain to purpose, right? So you're being able to, you know, negative experiences that have impacted you, you know, speaking specifically on racial trauma, you know, what can we do to make sure that other people aren't impacted in the same way in the future? So those are some things that we're working on, connecting to key stakeholders within the systemic spheres, being in education, you know, government, and healthcare to really, really, really try to push change and make a difference. Mm, I love that. That's really, really awesome. Who are some of the key collaborators? So you mentioned as an example, working with juvenile departments, who are some of the other collaborators that you are engaging with? So for one, another one is the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they are really kind of key in putting out resources related to trauma, trauma trauma-informed practices, and disseminating that information to the public. So they're another one connecting with universities within Philadelphia, you know, whether it's teaching, doing workshops, you know, done workshops at Temple University. There's one planned at Villanova coming up. So those are just some of the examples of community partners. And we're always looking to build more. You know, I mean, the work, it just really involves a community effort, 
So any change that occurs is because of people collectively pushing and trying to make that difference. So, and we recognize that this isn't an individual fight, you know, full being services, we're not going to do this on our own. However, you know, we are, you know, kind of actively seeking partners who really do want to make a change. That's really awesome. But of course, you know, thinking about the notion that, you know, systemic changes you referred to earlier being one of your major priorities, that that can take quite some time, right? How do you, how do you envision keeping the momentum, you know, beyond the pandemic or beyond the sort of woke moment, if you will, that may be temporary? How do we keep people awake and continue progress? That's a really good question. And I think that's something that we're all exploring together. You know, I don't know if there's a singular answer for that. I mean, you know, it would look different in different spheres, you know, in government, for example. I mean, with the change in administration, you know, there seems to be more openness towards recognizing, you know, acknowledging, discussing and coming up with actionable plans regarding kind of issues of, of race and racial justice. How that unfolds is yet to be seen, but you know, there, I would say as it's seeming that more and more people of color are being more comfortable in using their voice to identify, to call out, to say stop to inequities and injustice. And, you know, that is, I mean, that's just really a huge part of being able to heal from racial trauma being able to move forward with your life, you know, being able to kind of let some of these things go and not carry that burden with you, you know, it can be really, really exhausting. So, you know, when a person of color is really kind of presenting in treatment, I mean, they could be presenting with depression and meet some of these textbook definitions, but, you know, it's layered in the complexity of their racial identity, their experience, you know, their ethnicity, their culture, and, you know, they're, the way that they've had to navigate in the outside world, in the workspace, because of those things. So really, I would say it, it's an ongoing effort and it takes allies, you know, the buy-in from key stakeholders, but also other people with similar visions who are also pushing and trying to make a difference and making themselves more accessible towards you know, black and brown people who are looking for the support, right? Because if we're able to effectively help one family, you know, work through their trauma, work through their anxiety, work through their depression, improve their wellness, you know, they're now they're able to go out and present their best selves to the world and make a difference in their own lane. So, I mean, systemically, there's so many different levels of impact. And, you know, we're pushing forth on multiple levels. It's really really nice. And your organization offers not only mental health services, but also life coaching, which is another area that is, you know, so much needed for folks. And is part of that sort of transition, how do you help individuals recognize maybe the difference in need, right? Between their need for mental health, it may not actually be a mental health issue, just might need to be a you know, a redirectioning of their life. How do you distinguish those? And is life coaching something that is familiar within the Brown and Black communities? So it's really, a lot of it depends on who's presenting in front of me. What are their needs? What are they looking for? You know, counseling, you know, traditionally requires a diagnosis. It requires a pathology. 
you know, it requires something that needs to be kind of quote unquote cured or resolved. That's all traditionally, you know, from our perspective on the wellness lens being very solution focused, right? You know, we're, we're looking to build upon resiliencies to maybe help resolve past issues to expand natural supports and protective factors. You know, those are all kind of therapeutic aspects of, you know, of what we do, counseling. So when someone is calling or, or emailing, you know, consulting on what service is best for them based on what they're presenting with, that's really kind of how we help determine. And it's a conversation, right? There are people who want both, you know, they present with a life coaching need and a therapeutic need, right? So we wouldn't pair that person with, a, with the same therapist and the same life coach, right? Because those are two very different tracks. And it's easy, it, it can be easy for them to bleed into each other at times. I mean, there are parts of it that overlap, but it's really, you know, what is the person presenting with and what are the overarching kind of goals and needs? And if it's within like a specific domain, for example, you know, employment or, or professional related you know, life coaching, you know, most likely might be the most appropriate path for them. But again, that's a conversation because as we have this conversation and things come out, you know, there may be some unresolved things that may need counseling to address. And if the person is open to it, that may be the lens that we go to first before we kind of hop on the life coaching platform and move forward on that regard. Mm, Makes total sense. I can't believe that we're almost out of time. This has been such an informative conversation. And I really appreciate sort of the dynamic ways in which your organization is touching diversity in the community, right? And while I'm sure that you provide services for everyone, that you acknowledge that the needs can be different and that there is there are pockets within the broader community that need access who maybe be reluctant to get access to seek care and others who have been desperately seeking it, but not finding the place, the fit for them. And it's amazing that you guys do the work that you do. We often like to ask our guests to have an opportunity to share a resource or a tool, one that they, maybe that you perhaps Chris personally find very beneficial or one that your organization has found instrumental in your growth and share it with our listeners. Any resource or tool that you'd like to share? Yes. So as far as a resource or a tool, I mean, I like to keep it simple and really kind of start with what's around me, right? So recognizing the people in my life that, and I also encourage others to do this as well, but recognize the people in your life and the different types of supports that they do offer. So I have some really understanding colleagues who have some similar experiences, who are experiencing similar things currently. And we are able to connect and unburden ourselves and process and, you know, just leave really kind of feeling rejuvenated that we're able to kind of connect with each other and know that we're not isolated in our experiences. So I encourage that natural connection and strengthening those relationships that you do have. So that is definitely, you know, a huge, and I think it's often underlooked, you know, people are often kind of looking for something outside of the norm of what they do. But, you know, if we just take another look at the resources that you already have from a different angle and, and kind of think about how are you using those resources you know, that's where you can a lot of times see the greatest change and also tapping into the spiritual piece. So too much, too often that is left out and it's, you know, 
just kind of given our busy lifestyles, it can be difficult to stay on track. But there are many different forms of spirituality. There are many different ways to tap into your spirituality. So that's another thing why I would encourage people to kind of lean into your spirituality more, you know, because it's all connected, right? Our, our minds, you know, our bodies, you know, and our spiritual side and making sure that we are exercising, you know, that part as well. So, you know, I mean, I, I know that's, it's pretty s- simplistic, but it can really end up having some of the biggest difference for people. Chris, thank you so much for those words of wisdom. Before you go, share with us, what would be the best way for someone to contact you or contact your team if they wanted to perhaps ask a question or learn more about your services? So they can go to our website, fullbeingservices.com. They can also email us directly, uh, support at fullbeingservices.com. So email, we do have a phone number that's listed on the website as well. There's a contact form. People can put in their information to contact for consultations, workshops, if they're interested in treatment. You know, those are probably the quickest avenues. People prefer to call. We do have a number, 267-689-7877. Excellent. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio. This program is made possible by listeners like you. To learn more about Reach and to support this program, visit www.reachtl.org. <music>